nothing but
Listen for the resolution of that chord. Get all set. Although I was watching and she was perfect on the timing. Did you notice that? Thanks so much, Jane. We've gathered together. One of the things I love about Michigan is you just look outside and see what season it is any given day. Comes and goes. Thankful for the blue sky. Thankful that we can be here. We're, the, the church at this time of year is on a journey that we call Lent. And journey is a, this journey is a time to kind of set aside 40 days leading up to Easter, kind of modeled on the 40 days that Jesus himself had in the wilderness to fast and pursue God. And in these 40 days to focus on Jesus and to see our need for him in light of the cross. That's what penitence and repentance in light of the gospel is. It's about seeing our brokenness and how Jesus has met it. So I'm going to be using uh, a call to worship today that focuses on Jesus. I'll read about three lines and then you'll respond. But let the words of my mouth be, oh, I'm seeing a different one there. Yeah, is that celebration for this service? Do what? Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's do this one instead. <laughs> Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people the sheep of his pasture, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His faithfulness continues. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the exciting part, let's see what hymn is next. That's the one. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> hymn number 193. <laughs>
Amen, and have a seat. Occasionally when I'm sharing with someone, they'll say, oh, I'm not into organized religion. And I tell them immediately, well, great, come to my services. <laughs> Won't see much organized, but you will see folks who are forgiven and given it everything they got. Is that fair? Welcome this morning. What an adventure it's been already. I'm thankful for those on site. It's a beautiful day here where we are. And I'm thankful for the opportunity through the live stream and recording that you let those of us who are here be a part of your experience and your situation. It's always amazing to me to get feedback from folks who are part of our time together here, but in different parts, not only the country, but across the globe. So what God is doing here is reminding us that we're part of His worldwide, all ethnic, through all time, for all people, kingdom work. We get to be a part of that great thing. So welcome. After the service this morning, we typically gather for coffee and juice, some munchies, fellowship time. I will not this morning be doing my question and answer, the follow-up with the pastor, which I usually do. I'm always happy for those times to get feedback and uh, give you opportunity to ask questions or things. But this morning, I'm trading with JB. Last year, uh, last week, boy, it's been a busy week. Last week, he preached at Celebration and Fusion. This week, I'll do the same for him. I'm just excited they're going to let me cross the hall and see if I behave. <laughs> Should be fun. A couple of things for the upcoming week that I want you to be aware of. One is on Wednesdays, both in the morning and the evening. We're doing a very brief, reflective service, but a chance for you to gather with a few of God's other people. There'll be some prayer time, some reflection on the scripture, and communion. Again, as part of building that Lent journey for you to reflect and remember who Jesus is and what that means for our freedom. Next Friday and Saturday, uh, we'll be doing a ministry called Feed My Starving Children. Uh, it doesn't take any particular skill. They let me do this. You'll We'll put folks together in teams and you'll work together to package various ingredients, rice, protein, uh, things like that into a safe, sanitary, sealed bag, and then we ship it all across the world with this ministry. Uh, we've made thousands of meals uh, to take to war zones, to places where there's famine, refugee camps. It's a way for us to get kind of hands-on. And I understand there's still some slots, a two-hour slot, uh, Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon. Meet some folks, have some time uh, working together and great things like that. And then this Wednesday night, uh, we're going to host Professor uh, Frank Spires, a emeritus professor from Calvin University. Some of you have probably heard of that school. He was an art professor there, and he's going to be doing a slide presentation where he shows some of the paintings and drawings across several centuries, but then talks about how these paintings reflect underlying ideas. And it's a great opportunity to see in picture form some of the changes going on in how folks think, and it gives understanding into the confusion of our world today. Much art reflects that confusion. And so by simply looking at the pictures, you don't have to be an art historian or an artist, but it helps you get a sense, oh, I see what's changed. 
And that lets you reflect on your own heart and how the gospel can impact that. So it's a great time. I've seen this presentation. Great opportunity to invite a friend and be a part of this together. Come for the community night dinner. Uh, we'll stay in the great room right there and be a part of that. Some of the uh, things that Celebration does open to our community and inviting through the week. Um, we have a faith that wasn't invented by me or by you. It was given to us by the grace of God. He gave us the substance and, and content of what it means to believe. Now, over the years, folks have reflected on that, and we've worked it out, stated it in more detail, and that's what the Heidelberg Catechism is. Um, I've been here for coming up on five years and been reading and digging into the Heidelberg Catechism in a new way, and I've grown to love it more and more. What a great, warm-hearted statement of the gospel. So we include it in the service here. This is question number 43. Um, I'll ask, you'll respond, we'll respond together, and meditate on these words and what they mean. <clears throat> well, here's the question of the day. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By Christ's power, our old lives are crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of gratitude to him. He gave his life for ours. He knew our fears, our sorrows, our brokenness. Let's sing of that truth, hymn number 170, if you'll stand as you're able. Amen. And have a seat if you would. Like at this time to take a time to pray.
pray together. After that, I'll have the kids up, and we've got some special things for them. But first, let's pray. And as I've taken to doing, you know, we're a little discreet about private names spoken out loud with our live stream. But I'll give you space, silence, to pray for the people and the circumstance and situations that you brought. The wonderful thing about the Lord is that he can hear each of us in the same moment. So I'll pray, I'll give you space, and we'll come before the Lord. Let's turn to our Father in heaven. Lord God, thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, the way has been opened, and we enter the throne room of a great creator king. But because of our faith response to the grace that you have sent us, we enter as deeply loved, fully adopted children. And so we pray from the posture that I've just described, deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great creator king because of who Jesus is and what he did. Abba, Father, hear our prayers as we pray for the ministry of Hardawike and all the things that go on under this umbrella of grace. I wanna pray particularly for our ministry, Neighbors Plus, as they begin preparation for Great Escape Summer Camp, recruiting and training volunteers. As registration began this week, and we've seen an overwhelming response. Again, help us to receive and care for these campers. Give us staff. For our English as a Second Language ministry, working with 65 students from upwards of 18 different countries. Help us to welcome and equip, and most of all, to engage them with the gospel. And for Kids Hope, where now we send 32 folks from Hardawike to mentor students in an area elementary and middle school. Thank you that the gospel moves across relationships. And so use Kids Hope, guide each mentor, give them encouragement. Kids can be uh, hard to connect to sometimes, but as you make that connection, may it be life-giving on both sides. We pray for Pastor Aaron and the ministry of Watershed, even as they begin to prepare for their worship, for fusion, right across the hallway where I'll be preaching this day. Again, we thank you for the way we get to live out both the universe, unity in the gospel, but also the diversity of our lives together. For Mission and Pastor Florencio, who'll be preaching right here. But you've called us to be a part of this one gathering of people, because it's not a place, it's not a time, it's not an order of service, it's the people that are your church. And so we pray for celebration. Father, there are those among us who are sick or struggling, they've had a hard diagnosis or a challenging recovery, just the infirmities of life on a planet that awaits a Savior. Take a moment and I'll give you space. Pray for those in your circle of relationships who have a need for God's healing touch, physical, emotional, spiritual. You, you know, you lift that heart in your prayer. Father, even as you've called us on the journey of this life, so our lives are enriched by those who we share it with, but there's also a missing place for those who are no longer with us. And so we take this moment and pray for those who've gone to be with you, those who are far away, those who are grieving, 
those who are in this journey of life, pray by name as the Lord brings folks to mind in the silent sanctuary of your heart. Father, thank you that we are not alone, that you've not left us as orphans, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit will always be at work to make our relationships more transparent, to make our uh, community more welcoming, uh, more filled with the same grace that has rescued us. So lead us and guide us. Father, you've placed us on this world even as we wait for a Savior. And so we pray as you instructed us for those in authority over us, this week for the state of Michigan and the various government agencies and persons. We pray for Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, for all those who serve administratively on behalf of the state and in uh, many uh, offices and administrative bodies. We pray for our representatives uh, in the State House and in the State Senate that together they might gather and be instruments in your hand, even when they're rebellious. Thank you that your grace is big enough to turn the hearts of those in these places. So be with them. We pray for them first, Father. And Father, we thank you for the work of missionaries that go out from celebration. Uh, this week, we pray very specifically for Jake and Rachel Campan in Honduras with their family as they lead the school there, the church that grows out of there, all the different relationships in terms of the community. Use them as a light of the gospel. We pray your grace. And now as I often pray using the words of Scotty Smith to guide my own prayer, I would say this, Jesus, thank you for doing as you please, not as we beg or we nag or we wish or we pray. Thank you that it's recorded in Mark 7:37 that you always do all things well. When we see what you do, when you hide what you do, when you delay what you do, you do all things well. While we are prone to underbelieve the gospel and to overbelieve our fears and orphan voice, you remain steadfast in your love and faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for that. Thank you that nothing happens beyond the reach and reasons of the throne of grace. This doesn't eliminate our sense of vulnerability and mystery. We feel that every day. But it does give us an anchor in a sea of chaos and consternation in a rebellious world. Jesus, forgive us when we doubt your awareness or your goodness. Thank you for understanding when we replied to heartache like Martha did. Lord, if you had only been here, this hard thing might not have happened. Jesus, help us when we struggle with our hiddenness, with your hiddenness, your timing, and your ways. You laid down your life for us, so we see no, no greater love than that. Father, bind us together in one heart, one voice, one mind, as we pray together the words that Jesus gave to us, uh, saying this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. All righty, at this point, I want to do two things. David, come on up here with me at the pulpit. I'm going to ask our kids, we're going to do our children's time with one of your own kids. So any kids who want to be a part of what we're doing, just come up here onto the front row, and I'll introduce you to Mr. David Steenweich. You can hide right behind the pulpit. I often do that. It's a great way to do that. Here we go. Thank you for coming up, folks. One of the things I'm anxious for you to uh, learn and see is that God uses every one of us right where we are in different different ways. And so most of you will know David, um, Chris and Meredith's son, he's in middle school at... Holland Christian. Holland Christian. All right. Shout it out there. That's good. And recently you took a trip. To South Africa. South Africa. And how many hours was that on the flight? I still can't get over this. For both of them, 16 there, 18 back. 16 and 18. Whoa. It's a long time on an airplane. But you survived. We've got some, some slides, and you'll be able to see them right up there, of stuff that David was doing. So let me start. We'll show that first one of Table Mountain. Tell us what this is, David. Uh, so that's a viewpoint from the top of Table Mountain, which took three-ish hours to hike up. Uh, 3,500 feet into the air. Uh, Most of it was fog, so that's among the better photos. (laughs) Okay, and boy, that's a beautiful bay right there in Fish Hook, South uh, Africa. Cape Town. Town. Okay, so that gets up to Cape Town. Well, that's cool. Now, the next slide, tell us about this one. Uh, That's where we worshipped the first Sunday we were there at a school common yard. Okay. It's significantly smaller than this, maybe like an eighth. Wow. Um, So this was a place that the church gathered. Yes. Okay. Good. What's next? Oh, y'all are serving. Tell me what you're doing there. Uh, So we were in Jim Sabash for that one, uh, which is in English, Jim's Bush. (laughs) Um, And I'm not in that, but I did help. And um, we're just making a, I think that's a 100-liter pot, and we're making a meal to serve 600 people. Serving 600 people. I may call you on a Wednesday night. Let's, that's what it, and that's what it looks like. That looks pretty good to me. I see green beans and carrots and corn. I recognize that. Was that a good meal? We didn't try it. <laughs> Oh, he, he's up here telling me, move on. We didn't try it. I'm, gonna, I'm highly confident that everything you made was just wonderful, bud. Um, okay, what's next? Oh, David, what's happening? That's uh, in the care center, actually, like the school playground. And we served the kids there for three days, and they just adored us. <laughs> That's in New York, we call that mugging. But great that you get a chance to play with them and have that time together. And who's this? Uh, That's a group photo. I think it's on a pier and there are seals somewhere over there. Oh my, that's fun. So the the life in the water and these sorts of things. So 
for my friends on the first row, the thing I want you to see is that no matter what age you are, if you're available to God, he can use you just like he did David. A lot of times we're struggling with ability or inability. For instance, think about ability. Do you think I can bench press 500 pounds at the gym? Right, that's not an ability I have. I'm unable, it's an inability. But if I'll go to the gym and do what I can do, that is to say availability, then it makes a difference. And David, the word I'd have for you, friend, is that though you're a very capable young man, you're able to do a lot of things, what's most important and what really made this happen was your availability to say yes to God, even if it meant a 16-hour plane flight. And so folks, remember, it's about availability. What will God do to use you right where you are? It's good news, and that's the adventure. It'll take you all kind of places, whether around the world or to cities like New Orleans, or even I made myself available to God, and, and he said, I want you to go to, to, to Holland, Michigan. And here I are. Let me pray for everybody. Jesus, thank you for your great love, and thank you that you've called each of us in the fullness of your grace, and you desire to shape us by using us. Thank you that we had a chance to be a part of this moment in David's life through our prayers and support. Thank you for his availability and your grace to use whatever ability he may have or not have. Remind us all of that and fill us with great hope. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said together, amen. All right, y'all may either head back to your seats or if you're going downstairs to our children's ministry, take a moment and do that. All right. Well, let me touch a couple of things as we draw close to the scripture. Um, overall, right now, we're in a process where we're reading through the narrative of the scripture, starting with Genesis, working to Revelation. We're using an edited form of the New International Version called the story. It doesn't repeat all the genealogies. It kind of edits some things out so we can focus on the narrative. And now we're done with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament portion of that, and we're turning to the New Testament portion of that. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus. We call this mini-series, This Changes Everything, because friends, that is what the gospel does. He loves us enough to welcome us just like we are, but he loves us too much to leave us just like we are. Day by day, step by step, glory unto glory, he is at work to shape us. And so if you're reading through the story with us, we would be into the gospel section. I think it's uh, chapter 22, and you'll see we call it the birth of the king, and there's chapters here from Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and John 1. Now, here's a perspective I want you to get. For the next four weeks, we're going to kind of break away from the story, and instead of watching the life of Jesus across all four Gospels, we're going to focus one Gospel at a time. You'll see this is the birth of a king, and you deduce that, okay, Matthew must have something about the birth, and Luke must have something about the birth, and John must have something about the birth, but where's Mark? 
what we want to do by breaking from the story a bit and looking gospel by gospel at the four gospels is help you begin to see that four gospels give us a perspective of Jesus that I want to call an enriched or nuanced view. Each of these gospels are not Xerox copies of each other. They're written by particular people to a particular audience, by people who have met Jesus, who've been changed by him, but they bring to us each their particular perspective, and it's very helpful to keep that in mind. For instance, this morning we'll be looking at Matthew, and Matthew has a particular Jewish flavor. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector who Jesus called to follow him. His uh, gospel has probably more Old Testament references. Matthew wants to make sure that his audience realizes that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied. We'll see that in the way he remembers this moment uh, in Peter's life and ministry with Jesus. So Matthew has a particular perspective Mark, the one without a birth narrative, we understand that that was written by John Mark, who was with Peter. So it's like Peter's memory of these things. And because he's writing, as best we can tell, to Romans, the Romans didn't care who your mama or daddy were. They wanted to know how big is your army. And so Mark begins this way, the beginning of the gospel. Matthew had a genealogy that rooted him into the Old Testament. Mark begins right away. Immediate movement, energy, power. It's a Roman kind of perspective. One of my favorite is Luke. Luke was Paul's traveling companion, his mission buddy, and he was Greek by origin. He was a physician by training. That means Luke had been trained in the best that Greece had to offer, that culture at that time, Luke had taken the Hippocratic Oath, something that apparently we're not doing in the United States anymore. Isn't that interesting? Luke was well-schooled, well-trained as a physician. He's particularly interested in the details about birth and about sickness. You'll see Luke differentiate between when Jesus heals and when Jesus does exorcisms. He's very clear about that. Why? Because he's a doctor. He's got a sense of how all of this reaches to all nations and all people. Why? Because he's not Jewish and it reached him. Luke is the first volume of Luke and Acts, kind of a two-volume history early on. And Luke says very clearly, I checked all this out with eyewitnesses. And he uses a particular term, eyewitnesses. He'll regularly refer to these with a legal kind of terminology that would stand up in court. So he wanted to make sure it was true, and he did the work. And then there's John. His is the least chronology. His birth narrative is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his is like a memoir, like a reflection. He was the youngest when Jesus was alive. He was the one that Jesus had a special fondness for. And he lived long and saw God do things across the decades began to meditate on who Jesus was and what that meant. So each of these give us a particular perspective. It's like, have you ever seen a holograph, it's called? 
they'll have particular projectors and it's as if from different angles they can make it look like a three-dimensional person. Because we have four different gospels, each written from a unique perspective, we get a very enriched, nuanced view of who Jesus is. Was Jesus the Lord revealed in the Old Testament? Yes, but he was that and more. He was the savior of all nations like Luke saw. We need both of those. The story does what's called a harmony of the gospels. It takes all four of them and kind of runs the storyline through all four of them, and that's a fine way to do it. That's how Calvin worked his commentary of the Gospels. Got a great history to it. But we also need to read the Gospels and let each of them speak to us as we stand in the shoes. I have a friend who's a police officer in Louisiana, and he says whenever he's investigating an auto accident, he wants to get witnesses from different perspectives. What did that accident look like when you're looking from the east? What did that accident look like when you're looking from the west? It's not that they're contradictory, they enrich and embody one another. It's like going from mono to stereo to 5.1 if you're into sound. This enriched view of the gospel is what we get. My guess is that if you were to read one chapter of the gospels a day, you'd get all four in about three months. In one year, one chapter of the Gospels, you could probably read all four of them about four times. Do that and see if you don't grow to have this deep, rich, nuanced view of who Jesus is. Because who Jesus is, is what matters in life. Now, let me read to you from a portion of the book of Matthew. It's chapter 6. I'll start with verse 1, and then we'll move a little further into the text. So, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they tested him by asking to show him to show them a sign from heaven. They have that encounter, and then later it says, Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but he was telling his disciples and warning them against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? You can just imagine the long pregnant silence, the wondering, the fear of failure. We always have that performance anxiety. What if I get this wrong? But Simon Peter answered and he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. A transcendent moment, by the way. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever they, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on, in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was Messiah. You see, the time had not yet come. That time would come, but it was not now. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that Matthew, who would have been right there, was struck by this moment. And as he reflected on it across the following years, it would come to mind, just as you said, the Holy Spirit will remind us of all truth. And so Matthew very carefully recorded it. We recently found an even earlier manuscript that looks to be from Matthew, says this very thing. So it was recorded and then amazingly it's been preserved so that now by your grace we can open the scroll, we can translate, study, read, pray, consider. And Holy Spirit, just as you were there to begin it, so now you will complete it in us. Illumine our hearts and minds to hear your word that we too might see Jesus and say, you are the son of the living God. That we would have a faith that would be a rock for our life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can guard your people from my own brokenness and confusion but that in all things, Jesus, our hope and our joy will lead us. We thank you for your kindness in, in your mighty name. Amen and amen. Well, who is Jesus? This is an important question. Let's take a moment and hear it. I have no clue. He was a man. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm. Pretty sure he existed. Like I'm not gonna say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was you know we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and he to me is the like symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that like constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened like religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others and I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God, and it was hard to relate to him, but I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. Twenty people, twenty answers. Who is this Jesus? I want to tell you, it's an important question for each of us to ponder, to give the time and attention it takes to answer, and indeed to answer. We see a couple of different ways that Jesus gets at this in this particular text this morning. Jesus is challenging people to a decision. It really does get to that, but it's a decision even more than what I make, it's a decision that makes me and a decision that will make you. Who is Jesus? In the text this morning, it begins with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it says in verse 1, that's why I wanted to include it, that they were testing 
Jesus. And so it is, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want to test Jesus. Why? Because they have an agenda. They have a life that they want to protect. They are not willing to follow any Jesus who's different than their agenda or who meets their needs. They want to ask themselves, can I shape him to fit my agenda? Now, it's a very simple step here. I'll just point to it and move on. But it's easy to look at first century Palestine and to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees as the parties, the religious political parties that they are, not unlike Democrats and, and Republicans. People who come to Jesus, with a, each with their different agenda, and ask, do you fit my agenda? You see, the Pharisees... And any one of us may have this same posture of heart. Does Jesus fit my desires and my self-generated values? Does he reinforce who I think I can make myself? And so we're surrounded in a world, and you would have heard it in some of those tests. There's the self-justice Jesus. There's the prosperity theology Jesus. All very different depending on your agenda. Often we come and we ask, does Jesus fit what I am comfortable with? Would he really expect me to fly 16 hours? If my comfort determines who Jesus is in my life, I'll end up in a very different place. Is he what I was raised with? You see, different people have different agendas and different measuring sticks. But they come with an agenda. Does he fit for me and what I want, what I value, what I'm willing to do? Well, that's where it begins in this text. But Jesus starts in verse 13, and he moves to the disciples. And he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Very interesting. He asks the disciples this general question, and they respond by reporting. They're making an observation. If the Pharisees and the Sadducees come with their agenda to see if Jesus fits, the, the um, disciples, they've been with Jesus. They know he may not fit, but they're not quite sure. And so they'll report what other people say. Well, my grandmother really believed. Well, I've heard this. Oh, I read that book. All of us in some way are ready to kind of report what the word out there is. But Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit in this moment, and indeed I believe in each of our lives, at least in this room, will always press another level deeper. But who do you say that I am? Grandma's faith was wonderful. The faith of the founders is great. Oh, I understand there's this book or this movie, but who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And what Peter is doing is categorically different than the Sadducees and the Pharisees, categorically different than the disciples. He's stepping forward with a decision and a commitment. Now, was Peter's decision completely well-formed? No, we'll see mistakes that he makes. Was his understanding of Jesus final and complete and perfect? No, absolutely not. I want to point that out. 
But in the midst of all these different voices, who is this Jesus? Peter alone steps forward and said, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He makes a decision that calls him to commitment. Fascinating little context thing that you may not be aware of. It says that they had just gotten to the surroundings of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a city in that time. It was about 25 miles north of the northernmost edge of the Sea of Galilee. So it was a little further than what you'd usually call Israel. And at this time, it was a very important Greco-Roman city. It was international and cosmopolitan. Still, it was populated mostly by pagan Syrian and Greek folks. And over the years, that area had been a center of different kind of worship. Baal had been worshipped there in the Old Testament days. Baal, the enemy of God. Remember, Elijah said, who is the Lord? Who is God? Is it the Lord, Yahweh, or is it Baal? And the fire came down. The distraction, the idolatry of Israel had a root right here. After that, it became the center of worship for the Greek god Pan in that area. Pan made music and was a shepherd. You see the idolatry of a false shepherd god? David, the shepherd king who pointed to Jesus, Right next door, Pan, the shepherd deity, worshipped in that place. At this particular point of time, Rome had begun to honor Caesar as if he were the incarnation of a god, as if he were God himself. And Caesarea Philippi was a place of worship for that. So there's the Pharisees with their agenda. There's disciples who are observing. And imagine what they can observe, a place with a history of worshiping Baal, of worshiping Pan, now of worshiping the political leader and structure. And in the midst of this, Peter steps forward and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter is deciding and making a commitment. It's not fully based in his understanding. He'll need to learn more. He's not making a perfect decision. After all, he's a human being. We'll see that as well. But he's stepping away from just observation or agenda or the world around him, and he's saying who Jesus is based on what Jesus has made known to him. You see, key to taking this step, Jesus tells Peter, is that it was revealed to him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So you see, this was not something simply that Peter could deduce and apply. He needed to have insight from the power of God revealed to him. It's a, what we would call a transcendent moment. See, we live in a world, and you've heard me refer to this before, that looks for cause and effect, imminent reasons. Physics, cause and effect. Psychology, the cause and effect of humanity. Economics, the cause and effect of markets. But what's happening here is not cause and effect and can't be explained by that. It's something transcendent from outside the system. The Lord God has revealed to Peter who Jesus is. That's how he makes the connections. 
I tell you, friends, something I've observed in my own life. I've been at this thing of following Christ for some 50 years now. Can you believe it? And since I first made that similar statement in answer to who Jesus is, I've come to see that at the beginning, I thought I started this journey with a decision. I tend to be a big fan of Billy Graham. And remember, he had that magazine, Decision Magazine. And you'll hear folks say, I made a decision for Christ. Well, that's a part of my story. I prayed a prayer. I acknowledged Jesus as Lord of all the universe and Savior of my life. And I'm thankful I did that. It was life-changing. And I would encourage you to take the time and to exert the effort to ponder, to study, to ask, to discuss, dig in and ask that same thing for that same consideration. Because I hope you'll come to that same decision. Over time though, I began to realize that there was more happening in my decision. God was at work. What I experienced as a decision was better understood as a response of faith to the grace of the Spirit. God's Spirit had awakened me from the dead in my sin. He was drawing me to life, and it was right and good that I respond to that grace through a decision of faith. Over time, I've come to see that as an act of gratitude for who God is and what He does. But friends, God is involved with that. That's how folks come to faith. It's a moment of transcendence, a work of the Spirit that enters our broken world and makes more than we could ever imagine. And I want you to realize, it's clear in the text, that this is not about Peter. It's about the faith that he expresses. He makes a profession of faith, and you see it in the Scripture with this, you versus this. In verse 18, we read, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. You are Peter, this rock. Look at the difference. It's in uh, verse 17 as well. He says, you are Peter, this, in response to his confession of faith, this was not repealed. Here in verse 18, he repeats it for emphasis. You are Peter on this rock. What matters here, friends, is the faith with which Peter responds. It's not about Peter. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's a response of faith. You could quickly look through the scripture and see how again and again this rock has substance and meaning and is sure, not because it's based on humans, but because it's the work of God. Go back to the Old Testament, where the Lord himself, again, not spirituality, not what you can manifest, not a generic God, but the Lord revealed to Moses with his name, who spoke in the prophets, the Lord, he is the rock of salvation. The Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be my God, the rock, my savior. It is the Lord himself who is our rock. From the mouth of Jesus, we see that that same rock, the Lord, comes to us as his words that calls us to practice. It was the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus points out that the rock is the foundation upon which we build our life, not some person. 
Therefore, and this is Jesus speaking, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Don't build your life on what I tell you. Turn to the one I point to. Turn to Jesus, his word. Respond in faith to him. That would be my call. Another fascinating expression of this truth, it surprised me at first. You see, the rock is so sure, so solid, so immovable, it can also cause us to stumble. Come to this rock with your personal agenda, and at some point, you will fall flat on your face. There's a promise. Want to fall flat on your face? Bring your agenda to the real Jesus. He'll welcome you, and as you journey with him, there will come a moment where he will challenge you. He's challenged me. He'll shape you after himself and will not let you shape him after yourself. Jesus would challenge Peter when he faced disappointment. He would not fit Peter's agenda but he would shape Peter after him. You see, the scripture says that Jesus is also a stumbling stone. Listen to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, the stone that we build our lives on has been rejected by the world. We get that. And has also become a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Oh, my. The rock may cause us to stumble. Here, Peter is referring to passages in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament from Isaiah and Psalms. Over the years, I've found this sort of troubling. Jesus is a stumbling stone? What's that about? Cause people to fall on their face? Maybe even bloody their nose on impact? But I've been on this journey long enough myself to now realize something. Something that I did not at the beginning of the journey. The places that I stumble are often places my heart and mind need to be realigned with the real Jesus. Not the Jesus of my agenda, not the Jesus of my comfort zones, but the real Jesus, God in the flesh, who would give his life for me on the cross and conquer death. The places I stumble are often places I need to realign. Put another way, If you're going to move forward with Jesus, there will be places you at least stub your toe. Let him alter your path and you. Certainly that way for Peter, it was like that for him. And I want to show that to you now. You see, Peter, if you were to just look at this moment, it's like he's doing everything right. He's got it. He's the one guy who can figure out who this Jesus is. He has the right answer on the journey of faith. But things don't stop there. A journey moves along. In a few months, no more than a few years, Peter would deny Jesus. It says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. 
Peter would go from confession to denial. He would stumble. He would deny even knowing Jesus, much less affirming that he's the Messiah. Now, we know the story doesn't end there, but you need to include this portion. From victorious confession to horrendous stumbling. Now, in about four days, the tomb will be empty. Peter will have seen the risen Jesus, and he'll be trying to figure out life. But do you see, from confession to stumbling, and now to a new understanding of just who Jesus is, I want to tell you something. From here, it appears that Peter would be faithful to the end after this denial. But he had to stumble and be restored by grace himself in order to really believe and then tell others that they too could be far from God, but be welcome to faith and transformation. I want to tell you, if, Paul, if Peter had gone from the victory of that confession to the victory of preaching in the book of Acts, he would have never experienced a sense of his own sin and shortcoming that showed up in his gospel the rest of his life. It's people who have stumbled and been raised to new life by Jesus who are willing to share that new life is offered to stumbling people. It's just that clear, friends. It goes on for Peter's life. He'll never again deny Jesus. Indeed, what we know of him is he went to his death without turning from Jesus, but his relationship would grow. In just a few years following this, we see an event recorded in Acts 10 where his vision for God's purpose for the Gentiles, for all nations, all people across all time and cultures would be there. Peter is praying. He has a vision. At the same time, a Roman military officer, Cornelius, is praying in another city. God brings the two together. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was kind of like pre-Asbury kind of things. And that whole household comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And listen to what Peter says when he reads about this. This is next chapter 10. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts every nation from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. Jesus accepts people who turn to him. That's what it means to be right. Don't think Peter was out giving people the Ten Commandments so they knew what they should do. The Ten Commandments help us know we need a Savior. And as Cornelius knew he needed that, the gospel is the answer. And now Peter's vision of God has expanded. I want to ask you, friends, where is God expanding his vision of who he really is? Where is he taking your agenda, your comfort zone, your history or experience, and beginning to say, that's true, but I have more of me to show you. The journey of growing faith is about learning to come to grips with Jesus on his own terms. I had an experience of Jesus growing up in a particular church. But it wasn't until I began to dig into the scripture and see my need for a savior that I realized that was who Jesus was. I began to see Jesus on his own terms. Later on, I had to ask, is the scripture a reliable witness to who Jesus is on his own terms? Had to answer that question. Spent about a year and a half in college doing that.
I believe the scriptures of faithful witness because I've asked the question. Don't worry about asking questions. Worry about accepting cheap answers. Let God teach you because every one of us must decide for yourself who Jesus is. But here's the catch. Just as Peter had to make a decision, just as every person who comes to him must respond in faith to his grace, we must decide. We experience that as a decision, who Jesus is. We don't get to define him for ourselves. Jesus is who he is. Will I let my life be shaped by him, for him? Will I be available to him for whatever he might call me to? It was a career crusher when I spent a summer in the inner city of New Orleans rather than at some church summer program where I could move up the ladder but my life was forever changed. It's about being available to let God shape our heart, our mind, our understanding. You must decide for yourself. You're not free to define for yourself. I put a famous quotation from C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity in your sermon outline. And this is what uh, Dr. Lewis is getting at with this. See, Jesus reveals himself, claims to be God in the flesh who would give his life as a ransom for many. That's who he claims to be. So when somebody says, oh no, he's just a good teacher, you're saying, I know more who Jesus is than Jesus does. See, he presents himself as Lord. He's either a liar to say he's Lord or he's a lunatic on the order of a poached egg is the famous line from Lewis. I'd add a third one. We were talking about this as a preaching team this week. See, we've added a new one. Legend. Oh, he's just a legend. No, if he's who he claims to be, then that needs to shape your life. I want to close with another answer to this question, who is Jesus? Uh, it's a short video from an Irishman. Every time I think of Luke... I think about this guy, and it was uh, recorded. We got it from a video from Ireland's public broadcasting system. It's a fellow by the name of Bono. He's the front man and singer for the band U2. What or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, you know, because actually, he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think, therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. 
Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I no problem with miracles. <laughs> Living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. Let's pray. Father, thank you that God the Son came to planet Earth and took on flesh, that after a season of teaching, he would take our sin and go to the cross and give his life to rescue us. And that because he was who he was, he could pay that price. And then by your grace, you raised him from the dead with a power that can wake us from our own dead sin, make known to us the power of this life-changing gospel that we might respond with a decision of gratitude and say, yes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And sometimes I, I kind of get that wrong. Sometimes I think I've got it, other times I clearly don't. Over the course of my lifetime, I've come to see you more clearly as you are, I believe. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you draw each of us to that. And I pray even now for everyone in the sound of my voice that by your grace, O oh Lord, you would help them to see the great love of a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. More than a great thinker, more than a David Copperfield in his own time, but one who could give new life through what he did. Guide us in this journey of faith where we stumble. Thank you that you don't speak with shame or condemnation. You pick us up like you did Peter and say, come, let's take a next step. You will experience forgiveness in this moment in a way that will change how you extend forgiveness for the rest of your life. We thank you for this journey and that you're with us. Burst forth in our hearts with praise and glory. For we pray in the one who left the empty tomb behind and calls us to himself, the risen Jesus. Amen and amen. Friends, hymn number 223 is a great expression of this great truth that we are called to give praise to a great and glorious God who's loved us. Crown him with many crowns.
Now receive this blessing from the one who left the empty tomb. If he's Lord, he's in a position to give us directions for life. And that's what this blessing is. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age.